So to kind of kick this off, and I'm going to be I'm going to be teaching on the on the day of the Lord, and so some of you might um, your minds might immediately go to end times or something like that. I'm actually going to be speaking very little uh, about end times, and I'm actually looking at the, uh, the other portions of Scripture where this is talked about. So it's really inter- It'll be really interesting. So if you're looking forward to Pastor Jeff's eschatology, you might not get it today. Um, we had uh, my son Noah, who's nine years old, um, about. Uh, I don't know, five months ago or so, had a, had a dream. And when he, he, he shared this dream with my wife, um, and because of the nature of the g- dream, she connected it. I mean, it felt like the Lord stirred in her heart, like this, this might have to do with the call, that big gathering that was happening. So I'm going to share with you the dream because it has to do with this. Um, so in the dream, he was in a stadium filled with young people, and these young people were worshiping or celebrating. All of a sudden, he heard somebody yell out, Fire! Um, and all these sprinklers came on. But there wasn't a sense of urgency with the fire, so it wasn't a dangerous thing, but there was the word fire, and then these sprinklers came on. As the sprinklers came on, he went to leave and realized he didn't have his shoes and realized that his shoes were in this pile in the middle, and he had to go and find his shoes before he could leave the, the stadium, which is, which is interesting. Um, and somebody, a real nice lady, was helping him find his shoes. And the only other thing that he could remember about this dream in the stadium where the celebration was happening was this neon sign that said Pharaohs. And Pharaohs was spelled F-A-R-O-H. Um, so that was a little different too. So it was just this thing where it was like this, this big gathering, there was worship going on. So, you know, and there was this event, the call coming up. Um, and my wife felt like maybe this had to do with that. So we began to explore it a little bit. It turns out Pharaoh's is a Cleveland candy company um, spelled like that. <laughs> so that was really interesting, right? That the Lord is highlighting Cleveland. Um, and, and by the way, I don't think that every dream is from the Lord, right? This is one that we were submitting and just testing and weighing. So that, that was one. Uh, at an Acts prayer time, the Lord began to release, without them knowing this dream, um, the, almost their whole time was spent where he was using analogies of fire and rain, fire and water, and began to to bring that out. Um, when Vijesh and Nilesh were here, I was sharing with them, and I would just happen to share with them this stream because they were excited about the call too. And then it told me that they were just at, a, at an event with Lou where he had everybody take their shoes off and put them up front, and the people had to go and get their shoes um, before they, before they could, could, could leave because as a symbol, right, of a readiness to go with the gospel or something like that. So my attention was on the call and what the Lord might be saying as I sent it to my friend who was in leadership of the call, the thing that stood out to him was the word pharaohs. And he said, hmm, interesting, pharaohs in Cleveland. And so when I was at the call, we were in this awesome just worship time. It was just so great. And we were, it wasn't, there wasn't anything, I think we, we hadn't began to pray into anything yet. We maybe did some repentance, but it was just worship. And as we were in worship, um, and just in this incredible time, all of a sudden, all at once, and I shared this a little bit after the call, but I was just hit with the, with the fear of the Lord, and I felt him say really, really clearly, I'm coming against my enemies. And it almost seemed out of place, because we were just in this worship, great freedom kind of time, you know, um, of, of just 
loving on him, like that kind of free in worship. And then all of a sudden he says, I'm coming against my enemies. And there was like this fear of the Lord that hit me. And it wasn't a fear of the Lord like, oh no, he's coming against me. Like, you know, like you might be afraid of a lion, but you're not afraid of a lion if the lion's the one defending you. <laughs> and that's, that's what I felt like, right? That's what I felt like in, in, in this moment. The whole week he had had me in Isaiah 61, and he had me kind of go back to it, so I want to read it real quick. Um, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies, or the day, the day of God's vengeance against his enemies. And this phrase stood out to me, like, what is, what is that? <laughs> and it was like the Lord was highlighting that. And so the past little bit, I've been just going through a biblical study on what is the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord's vengeance. And the, when, the, when the Bible talks about things like that, what is it saying? So that I can understand when I'm in this setting where God seems to be pointing to, and he speaks a clear word, like, I'm coming against my enemies. This is a, a day of the Lord. What is he saying? So I'm going to take you through kind of some of the study I, I, I've done, and we're going to kind of jump through the biblical narr- narrative. And so um, I don't have a PowerPoint, but that's because I, sometimes it can distract me, and I'll go slower, and I'm going to be kind of just going through a bunch of different things. So if, you're, wanna, if you want to follow with me, be ready to turn quick, because that's how this is going to go down. Okay. Turns out this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a theme that's present throughout Scripture. And to understand it, we have to understand the way that the biblical authors wrote. Many times, biblical authors, when telling a story, would refer to details of a previous story in order to make a connection between two events. This is why even, and we do this with prophecy too, New Testament authors will point to a prophecy in the Old Testament that doesn't seemingly have to do with what they're talking about, but they'll say this is the fulfillment to that. You know, and they make a connection, and a prophecy has an initial fulfillment in the context it was given, and it has an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But they don't just do this with prophecy, they do this with other stuff too to connect stories, and I'll I'll show you what I mean. And this allows us to see a consistency of God's character and interaction in human history woven throughout the narrative scripture. The day of the Lord in scripture really refers to situations in which an empire or nation or civilization, tries to be like God, autonomous, deciding for itself good and evil, and ultimately leads to oppression and death. The day of the Lord is the moment in history when God confronts the evil of corrupt civilizations and orchestrates their downfall. So I'm going to start with with just reminding you of, of the fall right? Adam and Eve in the garden, the enemy comes to them, deceives them, and he deceives them by saying, if you eat this fruit, uh, God said you would die, but you won't die. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And he puts this in, in, in their heart, and they choose to eat, eat it, and all of a sudden, their eyes are open, and, it, and now they're the ones who decide for themselves. They have this autonomy, this ability, or I shouldn't say ability, but they're, according to their own criteria, they're deciding good from evil. God knows this isn't a good thing. God knows that this will ultimately lead towards death, so in his love for them and protection, kicks them out of the, of the, of the garden and looks forward to a, a day when uh, one of the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's head, it says, right? And he points forward 
a time of redemption, a time um, where things will be set right. We move forward to the, the Tower of Babel, and I'm kind of beginning to skipping along, so if I skip some stories in here, it's okay. The Tower of Babel, or really that word Babel, is really just, I mean, when we see Babylon in Scripture, um, did you know, like Babel is really, the same, is really the same word. So in this city, at the Tower of Babel, I'm, right, this is where everybody gathers together and builds this big tower and unites against God. Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. I'm just going to read what it says. They began saying to each other, the people of the community, let's make bricks and harden them in the fire. I harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. They said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky or the heavens. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they, speak the, they all speak the same language. After this, they will set, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. And so the Lord separates them and confuses their language. But this moment here kind of becomes what we call like an archetype, right? A pattern in scripture where there's a civilization that rises up, that tries to be like God, that claims autonomy for itself, deciding deciding for themselves good and evil. It leads to uh, oppression of God's people and it ultimately leads to death. Um, And then a day of the Lord happens where God brings about the downfall of that community. Okay, go over to um, if you're if if you are tracking in your, in your Bible, look at Exodus uh, one, and I'm going to be reading eleven through fourteen, and we'll start to see some connections building here at, the, at this point, kind of setting the stage up till here. Um, right? And at this point, the Israelite people, this is after God's made a covenant with Abraham. Um, and we go all the way through the story of, of Joseph, which lands them in Egypt. A new king comes up, and he's forgotten about all of that stuff. And so he's persecuting these, these people and making them slaves. Um, so chapter 1, starting at verse 11. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. Now listen to verse 14. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. And yes, this was the work, and maybe this is just circumstantial that they just happened to be doing this, but I think the biblical author is trying, if you were reading along in this story, you would remember two things here. You'd remember when they got kicked out of the garden, they had to, um, one of the consequences was the hard work of their labor in, 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 the, in the field, right? And then the Tower of Babel, they were building with brick and mortar. And it references this, this is the only other time that it's used, and so it's, it's really, it, it's possible the, the, the biblical author is pointing back and trying to get us to see what? That Egypt is becoming Babylon. <laughs> that Egypt is becoming an, another version of the Tower of Babel. 
They are a, an evil empire raising up against the Lord, deciding for themselves right along, and it's going to lead to oppression and ultimately death. And especially here, right, um, it leads to, to, to genocide. There's this command to kill the baby boys and things like that. But God hears the cries of his people and sets them free, right? We have the story of the 10 plagues and we have the, the parting of the sea and, and Pharaoh's army gets, gets crushed. And these two events, the, the, the last plague and the, the parting of the sea get referred to from then on out as the day, which is really interesting, the day. And so Israel is delivered um, they have this great worship worship song in the desert, right, where that lifts God up as the warrior king who set them free. Um, and in 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 the wilderness, right, they're they're given a little bit more understanding of who they're called to be. That they are called to be a community that represents the ways of God to the world. That they are they are to be not Babylon. <laughs> they are to be not the city of Babel. They're to be not Egypt. And they're shown kind of how to do it. And you know, given the Ten Commandments and, and the, ways, the ways of God. Um, so all they have to do is not be Babylon. Nice and easy, right? <laughs> we know that this doesn't happen. In the book of Joshua, they, go, they acquire the land and judges. They have a cycle of rebellion against the Lord, and God redeems them. Uh, the kingdom eventually gets a king, becomes united kingdom through David. I know I'm going through this fast, so if you're not following me, that's, that's okay. I'm going to get to the... Um, the, the stories in here, I just want to track with, with the story. So a united kingdom under, under David. And the next person I want to look at is King Solomon. Because King Solomon is really interesting here because it starts off so cool. David's on his deathbed and, and Solomon makes this promise to follow the commands of the Torah and to be faithful to them. And Solomon has this encounter with God where God says, you can have one wish. What, what, what do you want, you know? And of course, any of us that have seen a genie story go, more wishes. You ask for more wishes. Come on. And, um, but Solomon shows some really a cool part of his heart at the beginning part of his life. And what does he ask for? Wisdom. Yeah. And he says it in a really cool way. He says, give your servant a heart that listens in order to rule your people and to discern between good and evil. And so at first we say, this is awesome. This is going to be it. This is the counter Babylon. This is like, this is a, a leader that like wants to submit himself to the leading of the Lord. And some things Solomon does are really cool, but there's this shift that happens and, and a lot of what happens isn't good. So on the good side of things, he spends seven years building a temple for the Lord, but he also spends 14 years building his own palace. <laughs> Solomon marries the king of Egypt's daughter. And when it, this is like, you know, you're not supposed to marry foreigners because God's protecting the people of Israel and he knows that that brings in idolatry every time. And I'm, this is, I'm taking some of this stuff from, from 1 Kings. So in chapter 5, Solomon drafts forced laborers to build his palace and his kingdom, right? So these are really, this is what's happening. In chapter 10, uh, we learn that he is getting 666 talents of gold per year. So he's just acquiring all this gold. There's, he makes 1,200 shields of hammered gold. <laughs> he has this huge ivory throne with 12 carved lions on it. He's got 1,400 chariots um, drawn by Egyptian 
horses. So they've gone and they've acquired these horses from Egypt. Um, he has 700 wives. Uh, like, it's just insane. This is just insane, right? And so he has these things here. So, but why are these numbers important and why, why are they all listed, like, you know, and, and that kind of thing? So I want to look back to when they are in the, the desert and given these instructions. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, listen to what it says. So this is before they acquire the land when they're in the desert. It says, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. This is what happens. (laughs) If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. And then it says this. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. So you see, the author is trying to get us to see now Israel's become Egypt. Israel's become like Babylon. And so we have this theme going through of people rising up in their corruption and power and wealth or whatever it is, whatever the promise of evil is that says this is the way that you do it, you discern good and evil for yourself, um, creates a nation that exalts itself against God and God says I won't have it. And so this is when the prophets of Israel right, begin to prophesy about a day of the Lord. But the day, the day of the Lord is different than what they expect because they want the day of the Lord to be where he comes and he shuts down their enemies and sets them free and r- brings them up. But all of a sudden there's this shift and the prophets begin to talk about the day of the Lord that's, that's really prophesying against Israel, <laughs> So later on in the, in the verse of, of or in the book of Amos, right, we have this this prophet uh, who kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> um, he's not one of the appointed prophets, and he he's a shepherd in a field, right? And he he's doing the work in the field, and he comes and he has this word. But I love what what he says, and this is um, from Amos five, verse eighteen to twenty four. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you're wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. And that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion, only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hands against the wall in the house, and he's bitten by a snake. Sounds like a bad day. (laughs) Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless, without a ray of joy or hope. This is just, this guy is intense. I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And you see Israel all of a sudden is confronted with this. this And most people don't take it seriously. Most people don't believe him. Until way, you know, late, later on when we see Assyria takes over <laughs> and Babylon takes, uh, t- take the, the empire of Babylon takes over 
right? And so this is kind of what happens in, in, in the biblical narrative, is that Israel, because of their rebellion against the Lord, gets taken captive, first the northern kingdom by Assyria, and then all of them by, by Babylon. And they're spread out, and it's kind of, they stay there, really, I mean, they get, they get released to rebuild the temple, but, this, but they're spread out all over the place, really, until Jesus enters the scene. So it's in between this, when they're in, in the Babylonian captivity, that this Isaiah word comes. So Israel is spread out, and they're under the captivity of Babylon, and Isaiah comes, and he says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He is appo- the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against his enemies. And so here, in this context, when Isaiah first said it, what he's talking about is Israel being held captive by Babylon. And God is going to bring freedom from them against Babylon. And this kind of happens. King Cyrus makes a decree and they're able to go back and rebuild the temple. And that's when you have books like Nehemiah. But the cool part about this passage is that, that with this passage, this is the passage that Jesus quotes. So when Jesus is on the scene hundreds of years later, he's in the synagogue and he's reading the scripture and he reads this scripture and then he says, um, and today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's like, wait a second, hold on, because I thought that was talking about Babylon and it really was really clearly talking about Babylon. Actually, if you read the rest of Isaiah, you'll see that all of this really is, it's in a specific context. And so what is Jesus doing when he, when he does this? He's pointing back He's, he's using a theme that's woven throughout the whole of Scripture of these nations that rise and set themselves up against God, and then God comes and, and dismantles them and brings about their destruction. And Jesus, um, and it's interesting because when Jesus says it, he leaves out the last part about the day of the Lord because he is ushering in this first part of setting captives free. He says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this is just, this is just awesome. Jesus comes on the scene and he puts himself in the context of this. And he comes in an inauguration of a sort of... <laughs> Uh, day of the Lord, but his enemy is so much different because when he arrives on the scene, it's in the context of a Roman Empire, right? And so if he were to come, he doesn't set his, his en- but he never talks about the Roman Empire as his enemy. He has his sights set on a different kind of enemy. He says that he came to, to destroy the works of the enemy, and he looks to, and over and over, and he, and he goes around, and he travels around, and he preaches this good news that the kingdom of God is coming, and then he casts out demons everywhere he goes, and he heals the sick. It's just, it's just so, 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 so good. And so all of this points forward to a final day of the Lord. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about, about that, because we can get into end times and, and, and eschatology and all sorts of stuff. And I think we get to look forward to that, that there is a final day of the Lord. But my point, my, my point in sharing all this and, and kind of tracking it through is to say, do we see what the Lord is saying when he says there is a day of the Lord coming? 
And do I understand when he speaks to, to me at the, at the call and says, I'm coming against my enemies. There is a day of the Lord coming against my enemies. You see, is he saying, end times is coming. I, no, I don't think he's saying that. I think he's pointing my mind to the, or my heart to this theme throughout scripture that he is set to bring about the destruction of structures of, of darkness and wickedness and evil. I believe that the Lord is releasing a deliverance movement. <laughs> I believe that he is acting, activating his church to do the works of Jesus that is setting people free. I think this is why, like, we're seeing, like, when we, when we, when we, and some of us here have experienced a lot of that through the freedom prayer ministry that this, that this church does. And so you've experienced, you know it, like, we read, we read this, this verse of I've come to set captives free and bind up the brokenhearted and, and a, a day against the Lord's enemy. And my mind almost goes to that freedom prayer stuff. It's both at the same time. It's we get free and the Lord assaults the, the enemy that was, that was restricting our heart and all of a sudden we're free. And so we've experienced some of that and we do that here. And here's, here's the cool part, okay? When we went out on the Russia trip, like, it was like God just opened the door for us to do this freedom prayer stuff. When they went on this France, this trip to France, God opened the door for them to do this stuff. And then everyone said, we need, we need some of that. And I think this is what the Lord is saying, is he is bringing some of that to this region, to, to the world. And there is, a, there is a, a movement of God bringing about deliverance. And it's a day of the Lord where he is coming against his enemies. Isn't that wonderful? So I don't have I don't have much more to, more to go than that. I, I do want to just um, highlight a couple a- application points. This is not just about. I think in in the church we have to be. It's easy to just become a social club of like minded thinkers. And so I think the word for the today is is to make sure that we're not that, but that we're an we're an activated army. And so what I'm challenging you to think about is like, what role does that mean you play? (laughs) If the Lord is coming against his enemies, is there stuff that you need to receive freedom from to engage in that? Is there something that God wants to activate in you so that when we leave from this place, we are sent out as agents that combat the kingdom of darkness? And it doesn't look like, right, just like Jesus didn't come and overthrow the Roman Empire, it doesn't look like shaking our fists and, t- and, and tearing down a kingdom. It looks like coming in the kingdom of God, being a part of that kingdom, being, being where we're at and seeing with new eyes the real enemy, seeing beyond just the surface level, and operating in a a loving, sacrificial love. And I love this. In Revelation, if we're going there, talking about the day of the Lord, right? John has this, this vision, and he hears, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he looks, and what does he see? He sees, or sorry, he, sorry, I said this wrong. <laughs> he hears, behold, the Lion of Judah, right? That's what is, so, yeah, sorry. So he, behold, the Lion of Judah, and he looks, and what does he see? He sees a slaughtered lamb. It's like this crazy thing, and it's, it's, it's a slaughter, and, and this is the image of the advancement of the kingdom of heaven, is that it doesn't happen through this force of tearing down kingdoms. It happens through the sacrificial love 
that lays down its life for those around it. And all of a sudden, that's what confronts the kingdom of darkness and ultimately breaks the cycle of Babylon kingdoms raising up. So God, we just ask that you would do this in us. That we want to partner with you in whatever ways you are bringing a day of the Lord against your enemies. We, we say with uh, with Paul in Second Corinthians, that we have been given mighty weapons for the tearing down of strongholds. And God, we pray that you would activate our hearts and our eyes, um, God, to, to feel and to see what it is that you're doing around us, to walk in the same kind of sacrificial love um, that Jesus did, ultimately dying on the cross for us and being raised again to new life. God, that same uh, resurrection life is in us. God, just like you equipped and sent your disciples out and you empowered them to to heal the sick and to cast out demons, God, right now even, we receive that same anointing. God, we say, empower us. God, use us to do it. God, continue, help us to see that you are opening doors for for our church to carry carry this, this message of freedom. God, would you equip and empower us to do it? In your precious name, amen.